God, our Father, uh, we're glad to unite together even as we gather in this uh, rather strange fashion using Zoom, but we're glad to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, and to thank you for your every mercy towards us in him, for your every dealing with us through the power of your Holy Spirit as the benefits of his work are applied to our lives in such a sovereign and gracious manner. And we thank you that as a part of that, in the wonder of your gracious working, you are pleased to bestow gifts upon your people that we may share together in ministering to one another. And not the least of those gifts has been that gift of teaching. And so we thank you for those gifts that you have given to Duncan and for the opportunity that we have along with him to learn through applying ourselves to this significant period in history and applying our minds to these issues that have a continuing significance. We pray, Lord God, that you would grant clarity to both Duncan as he speaks and ourselves as we hear, that together we may learn in such a way that we should be not simply informed, but transformed by the power of your spirit and the better equipped to face the challenges of this day and to serve the cause of the gospel well in our generation. May we know then your blessing resting upon us. May Duncan himself be conscious of your Holy Spirit ministering through him. And we pray that our time together would indeed be in all regards for your praise and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Jerry, good to, to see you and good to see you all. Thanks for your enthusiasm from last week. And uh, let me just, while I'm remembering, share the PowerPoint presentation. And as I say uh, on every week, there's not much that's novel in the presentation here. If you receive the handout in the email this week uh, or today, then you'll have a lot more information there. And where there may be uh, lengthy quotations that I might use, I think all of those have been included in the handout, so you'll be able to refer back to them there. Uh, if you were with us last week, we started out by looking at the subject of authority. We did think about how the, the Reformation in the 16th century is very much associated with re-grasping this doctrine that salvation is by, uh, by faith alone, uh, through God's grace alone, faith in Christ alone, and uh, but last week, we kind of took a step back from that to say, well, on what foundation did those conclusions rest? And we saw that it was on the principle that the supreme authority in all matters is Scripture. Because of what Scripture is, it is God's word. And because it is God's word uh, that comes to us effectively from the mouth of God, that we can be sure that those words are true, that they are authoritative and that they are, they, they are more reliable than the efforts of church councils and anything else you care to imagine. And uh, if I could uh, give you a quotation from Luther, which maybe sums up his conviction about how this, this reformation worked out. Um, he wrote this, you'll find it on page, uh, page two of the handout. He said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, 
and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What a wonderful outlook and what a wonderful conviction on the supremacy and the supreme power of scripture alone to effect the great purposes of God. And that will be our foundation for the rest of this module. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, let me confirm again that this, this module of seven weeks, though it is entitled Reformation Theology, I suppose a more simplistic title for it would have been Systematic Theology, because here we're trying to, to consider some of the key doctrines. Uh, what does the Bible say about certain key subjects? And if you're familiar with any tome of systematic theology, they usually are substantial. And we have seven weeks. So we really wanted to narrow down the scope of our systematic theology. And that's why we settled on Reformation theology, where we're really trying to, to, to look into those doctrines that were particularly uh, given renewed attention in the time of the reformers and by those who have walked in their footsteps. So last week we looked at the subject of authority, saw the, that scripture alone has the supreme authority, and uh, tonight we come to a new subject, which is the human condition. It is really how we answer questions like, what am I? How do I stand before God? Uh, what does God require of me? Having looked at scripture alone as the source of saving, saving revelation, we want to understand, first of all, tonight then, what scripture teaches about humanity. And I suppose the aim of this session really is to help us to know ourselves. Uh, this was a key plank of Reformation theology, because really your conclusions regarding the human condition will determine your understanding of salvation. In effect, uh, when we consider the human condition before God, we're trying to come to a diagnosis. We're trying to work out what's wrong. And inevitably, if you get the diagnosis wrong, then you're going to get the treatment wrong. For the reformers, this, is a, this was an area of doctrine that demanded a significant departure from the prevailing view in the church at the time. And so to get us started tonight, we're going to spend a bit of time walking with the reformer John Calvin. Here's some words of wisdom from him. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And that's what we're going to try and come to tonight, to have a better knowledge of ourselves. Though most of John Calvin's life uh, was lived elsewhere, he was always at heart a proud Frenchman. He was born in Noyon in the region of Picardy in 1509. And you notice that date there, 1509, he's actually a second generation reformer. Luther was born in 1483, Calvin 1509. Uh, he completed all his studies at French universities. And during that time, Calvin was converted. 
and he became actively involved with the evangelical cause at the time. And it got him into some trouble, so much so that he had to flee France for his own safety. He ended up in the city of Basel in Switzerland, where he published the first edition of his most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, 1536. His motivation for this work, which is a work of systematic theology, was to defend really the Protestant martyrs in France. And he defended them by having writing a beautiful preface to the Institutes, which was dedicated, it really was a letter to King Francis I of France. But his other motivation for writing it was, well, what the body of the thing was aimed at doing, which was to give clear instruction on, on evangelical or, or, or Protestant doctrine. Calvin, he, he moved on to Geneva, where he was elected as their pastor and church reformer. And to say the least, he had a turbulent time of it. He lasted only 18 months and he was unceremoniously booted out. His reforms were just too radical. And I hope you're sitting comfortably. Um, the sort of radical reform he was advocating was that they should sing psalms at the church. It was most offensive. Anyway, three years later, the city called him back. And through him, the Lord did a mighty work in reforming the church. But more than providing a model church in Geneva, that city actually became a center of training for pastors and missionaries where countless numbers were sent out as ambassadors for Christ. Calvin's understanding of church prioritized the work of evangelism, and he's not often remembered for that. Anyway, his big writing project was his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which uh, underwent a series of, of reorganizations and expansions. And uh, initially in 1536, it had six chapters. And by the time he'd completed it in 1559, it had grown to 80 chapters. Listen to what he himself says about his motivations for writing. Now you find this on page two of the handout. He says, although Holy Scripture contains a perfect doctrine to which one can add nothing, yet a person who has not much practice in it has good reason for some guidance and direction to know what he ought to look for in them. It is very necessary to help in this way those who desire to be instructed in the doctrine of salvation. Consequently, I was constrained according to the ability that the Lord gave me to undertake this task. This is one of the beauties of, of, of Calvin uh, being placed really as a second generation reformer, because the truth is Luther did not do and in fact could not do this sort of thing to systematize his thoughts in this way. Calvin was a different beast from Luther. Even though they agreed on so much, he was gifted in different ways. Calvin was of a much more timid nature than Luther. He would not have been able to do what Luther did. He was a man for his times. And Calvin wrote what may have been, outside of the Bible itself, the most influential book of the Reformation, his Institutes. And uh, the Institutes are, are, are thorough, a thorough covering of systematic theology. They're well-ordered and um, in, overall, they are divided into four books with many chapters uh, and below. And it, it's worth us just worth me just showing you the order of it. And I hope it would actually whet your appetite to, to go and investigate some more. Uh, in book one of the Institutes, Calvin, Calvin considers the knowledge of God, the creator. And there he speaks about the nature of scripture. 
He speaks about the nature of God, how he is triune. He speaks about creation, about how God upholds creation, about God's providence in the midst of that. And then you come to book two, where he speaks of our knowledge of God, the Redeemer. So you see how he's moved on, God, the creator. Now we think about God as Redeemer, where he's going to speak about the fall, human sinfulness, the place of the law, Christ as mediator, and his work of redemption. Then in book three, uh, he comes to the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, its benefits and effects. So there he speaks about the nature of saving faith. What is regeneration, repentance, justification, predestination, resurrection? And then in the fourth book, he speaks about the external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ. So there he speaks about the doctrine of the church, the sacraments, the relationship between the Christian, the church and government. So it's a really is a thorough undertaking. And I would say uh, this, this work has not lost any of its clarity or any of its value in the 480 years since it was published. And incidentally, Banner of Truth fairly recently published a single volume edition of Calvin's popular 1541 edition of the Institutes. It looks something like this. It's more streamlined than the final edition, though maybe doesn't look streamlined from there. It's more streamlined than the final edition. And you would be blessed to get a hold of it. Um, really just a lot of uh, plain opening up of the scriptures to show us what is plainly there. Uh, really wonderful. So let's, let's, let's walk with Calvin for a little while. The, the, the reformers, they, they held a view of both the remarkable dignity and honor and capacity that belongs to human beings as those who are created in the image of God. And yet also they had this, this clear view on the depths of the depravity of sin in human being. And indeed, Calvin goes on in his discussion uh, again, this is on, uh, I think, page two of our handout. He says, quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. He says you can find wonderful capacities in human beings, but the closer you look at those impressive capacities, the more clearly we see that their true fullness doesn't come from us because we are, we are in sin, but they must come from God. The importance of emphasizing the creation and fall aspects is so to be clear that the condition that humanity finds itself in now is not the condition in which God first created human beings. This was not God's design. Calvin, when he gets to the subject of knowing ourselves, understanding the human condition in his institutes, he sums up the knowledge that we ought to have into two strands, which really are um, answering two questions. First of all, it's to ask, why was I made? And second of all, it's to say, and what are my abilities? explain what we mean as we go along. So why was I made? What was humanity like when God created? Well, Calvin emphasizes the human traits 
that distinguish us from the animals. He speaks about the faculties of the soul, uh, human intelligence, rationality. He, does, he, he spends time speaking about understanding and will as things that separate off human beings from the animals. Understanding to distinguish between right and wrong, between the things that are approved and disapproved. And on the other hand, also will, will to choose, a will to follow our understanding. And he would point out that this is what we see in Adam and Eve. They were given free will to do what is right or to do what is wrong. And this distinction uh, between human beings and animals, this, this facul these faculties of the soul, you sum up that distinction with the language of Scripture. And simply, humans were created in the image of God. We are... We were created to be the divine image bearer. This is from Calvin's commentary. He says, the chief seat of the divine image was in the mind and heart where it was eminent. In the mind, perfect intelligence flourished and reigned. Uprightness attended as its companion. And all the senses were prepared and molded for due obedience to reason. And in the body, there was a suitable correspondence with this internal order. He says here there was a specific order. There were the higher functions of thought, intelligence, reasoning, and then there was the capacity to apply our will to those higher functions. Calvin says that to really appreciate what is entailed in the image of God, we need to look at what the scripture says is renewed in us, in Christ. And he takes this principle from Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see that new man that is being created in us is bringing us back to that image or the fullness of that image that God created human beings in the work of sanctification is restoring the fullness of the image of God in us. And so the marks of that renewal are what Paul says there. They are righteousness, holiness. It's to be creatures in whom God's glory is revealed. And what does that mean? Well, to glorify God is simply to reflect the attributes of God, to show forth his image. Uh, Calvin, among the, the many other um, writing projects he had, he wrote a, a catechism for the Genevans. And uh, this, this is taken from that. The teacher asks, what is the principal end of human life? It is to know God. Why do you say that? Because he has created us and put us on earth to be glorified in us. And it is surely right that we dedicate our lives to his glory since he is the beginning of it. And so that answers the first of Calvin's questions, doesn't it? Why was I made? Why? What was humanity created for? Well, we were made to bring glory to God. Well, if that's the case, the second question is crucial. What are my abilities? This question moves from considering humanity in its perfect pre-fall condition 
to look now into our own hearts and ask, what resources do I possess to fulfill that purpose for which I was made? And there are two possible ways to answer this question, and they depend upon the lens through which you read the question. And that will determine whether you answer it correctly or incorrectly. So you can answer the question, first of all, according to carnal judgment. Here's Calvin on that subject. Man seems to know himself very well when confident in his understanding and uprightness, he becomes bold and urges himself to the duties of virtue and declaring war on vices, endeavors to exert himself with all his ardor toward the excellent and the honorable. In other words, Calvin says, you can answer this question from a purely human perspective. And you can say, yeah, there are many impressive qualities inside a human being, great abilities, great talents. And so from that strictly worldly angle, from that carnal judgment, we would think, yes, we have the resources. Press on towards the goal for which you were made. But for Calvin and for the scriptures, this is a big misread of the situation. The other way you answer the question is to look at it through the lens of divine judgment. He writes, he who scrutinizes and examines himself according to the standard of divine judgment finds nothing to lift his heart to self-confidence. And the more deeply he examines himself, the more dejected he becomes until utterly deprived of all such assurance. He leaves nothing to himself with which to direct his life aright. When he perceives his lack, he should lie prostrate in extreme confusion, reduced to naught. A proper analysis from the perspective of God's holy judgment will never lead a human being to self-confidence, but rather to fall on our faces in the dirt. For we see that so severe is the fall, so utterly debilitating a thing is sin, that we have to confess we have nothing to commend us to God. Well, let's turn to the scriptures now to confirm this. And to help us, first of all, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible to hand, um, it would be good if you, if you could turn to Genesis 3. Uh, in Genesis 2, of course, God creates the man and the woman, places them in the garden, and provides them with one law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a command that was given to, to test Adam's obedience and to prove that actually Adam is willingly under God's rule. And probably the name of the tree gives us some idea, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, the purpose of the command was to keep Adam and Eve content with their lot, content to be dependent upon God, content to be trusting in the goodness of God, to be happy with their place as creature under God, their benevolent creator. Well, let's read where it all comes unstuck. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice what lies at the heart of the serpent's interaction with our first ancestors. He casts doubt on the reliability of God's word. And in so doing, he therefore casts doubt on God's character. Isn't that the serpent's case? God doesn't have your best interests at heart. It's God who's holding you back. God couldn't bear it if you became as wise and as knowledgeable as him. And this is what makes the fruit so desirable to them. Because it becomes a gateway for them to become like God. It's, it's a means by which they will no longer need to be creatures dependent upon God, but rather to be their own gods. So what was Adam's sin? And I want you to note, even though Eve is the first to take a bite, we are told that Adam was with her. It seems he heard the whole exchange and he did nothing to intervene. Significant enough to condemn the whole human race. What is this sin? Well, Calvin contends that it was pride that was the beginning of all evils. Yes, Adam was disobedient. By that disobedience, all fell into condemnation. But at its root was an unfaithfulness to God that led to ambition and pride in his heart as he wanted to grasp for himself more than God had given him. It was a desire to unseat God. And this prototype of sin in Genesis 3, it really is a lesson in what all sin is. It is the failure to trust God. And the battle against sin is always the battle rather to trust God, to have faith in his word, than to believe the false narratives that are thrown at us every day by the evil one. And of course, their sin in the garden did not affect only them. And it brings us to the subject of original sin. Adam's separation from God was, as God warned it would be, it was the death of Adam. 
physically, he did not die in that moment. I am sure there is an example of God's grace. But certainly, spiritually, he died. His relationship with God was broken. All of that um, covering his nakedness, hiding from God as he walks in the garden. And it's this spiritual death that fell upon our ancestors that has passed on to every descendant of Adam, with one notable exception, of course. Now, before we go into this doctrine, I want to take you back to an ancient debate on this issue, one that actually goes all the way back to the early 5th century. And it was a debate that was started by a British theologian called Pelagius. Pelagius denied this doctrine of original sin. He did not accept that inherent in every human born into this world is this inherited defect. His view was that the sinful nature of Adam was not passed down the generations by propagation, but instead was passed on by imitation. In other words, he says sin is not inherited. Sin is a learned thing. And that is an important difference. Pelagius was advocating for an optimistic view of the human condition, one that sees terms primarily in, uh, sees sin, I beg your pardon, in terms primarily of action, not so much in terms of human nature. And in this stirred the church father Augustine uh, in North Africa to write on the basis of what seems clearly taught in scripture. Augustine strongly refuted Pelagius and he particularly would base his arguments in passages of scripture like Romans 5 which I'm going to read if you if you have again if you have a bible to hand Romans 5 um, let me read from verse 12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In a sense, uh, Paul, in writing these words, wants us to notice certain similarities, actually, between the one man's trespass, Adam, and the one man's obedience, Christ. Um, but the similarity is that they are actually at opposite ends of the spectrum. They behave, however, in similar ways. So I don't know if you spotted this in verse, particularly verse 12, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. What is the consequence of Adam's sin? Through one man's sin, it is propagated throughout the whole human race. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Uh, verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And yet here is this wonderful reversing work of Christ. By his one act of obedience, he brings life to all. And all who are in Adam are lost and are sinners. All who are in Christ, by his one, this one act of obedience, he is now our representative. No longer Adam. He brings life. And you find a similar idea in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, uh, Augustine would, would point us to the scriptures and say the problem of sin is not fundamentally a problem with learned behavior. There is a difference in status between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. I mean, really, the question is, do we have to learn how to be sinners? I think the overwhelming answer that we all know is, no, we don't. We've seen enough children between us, I'm sure, grow up to make fine examples of sinners without having to be explicitly taught how to do it. These passages of scripture say, no, we don't have to learn. Original sin is something that is actually communicated to us because of our descent from Adam, not something we learn later in life. Here's how Augustine summed it up. Infants, according to the common origin of the human race, have all broken God's covenant in that one in whom all have sinned. Infants are born in sin, not actual but original. And there is a distinction here between being a sinner by nature and a sinner by practice. But the presence of sin is a reality for every human being from their mother's womb. And Augustine and the Reformers would especially point to Psalm 51, that Psalm of David. Um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Pelagius was successfully refuted by Augustine and uh, was, uh, his doctrines were rejected by the church in 418. But it was an ancient debate that actually had a huge bearing on the Reformation, in large part because of how it helped Martin Luther. So you remember, if you were with us last week, that we discussed Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. Well, Luther had a life before this historic moment. From 1513 to 1515, Luther lectured in the University of Wittenberg on the Psalms. And if you were to take a, a survey of those lectures, they've, they've pretty much all been preserved, I think, 
you would say that pretty much Luther was a product of his time. There's certainly not much indication in his lectures on the Psalms that here is a guy who is about to reform the church. He was a spokesperson for the, the medieval understanding. It's, uh, the, it was known as the Via Moderna, the modern way. And it had its own characteristic doctrine of justification. Now, it is always the case, always beware of this, when we, when we discuss these ancient schools of thought and these ancient groups, they were never just a, a monolithic block where everybody thought and, and said exactly the same thing. There was, there was always a, a, a bit of a spectrum. But in general, this scheme saw humanity's hopes of being right with God as grounded in a God-given covenant which defines the conditions which man must meet if he is to be justified. That's a quoting from Alistair McGrath. A God-given covenant which defines the conditions which man must meet if he is to be justified. So according to this principle, in order to receive the grace of God, a person must do his best. So here's a quotation from, from Luther uh, when he's refuting it. This is how he defines that way of thinking. God infallibly infuses grace in one who does what is in him. That's their understanding of salvation. One who does what is in him, who does his best, God will give grace to him. And you see, at its very core, this regards humanity as capable of turning to God, capable of offering works to God that would oblige God on the basis of the covenant to justify the sinner. Here, in this uh, semi-Pelagian understanding of things, it is the sinner who first moves towards God, making use of the natural capabilities that they have in order to initiate their justification. I should say there was no denial uh, in, in the medieval understanding of the necessity of God's grace for salvation. They went to great lengths to show that the best of human works, they possess no inherent value in themselves. They're only acceptable to God because he chooses to attribute value to them. However, the ability to respond to God was seen as a natural endowment, that it was present in every human being. And hence, the obligation rested on each individual to do what was in them, to do their best. And you read Luther's lectures on the Psalms, and that, that was his view at the time. He seems to reflect that view. But after the Psalms, he begins to lecture on Romans. And you read those lectures... And you find that there's a different Luther in town. He's a changed man. He's come to see justification in a completely different light. And in no small part because he's come to understand the human sinful condition in a new light. What brought the change? Well, surely it was no coincidence that he was studying Paul's letter to the Romans. And Luther testifies that this is what the Holy Spirit used to illuminate him to the true gospel. But there was something else that confirmed that understanding. And it was the writings of Augustine. 
Luther wasn't a stranger to Augustine. He was an Augustinian monk, but there is pretty good evidence that in 1515, Luther first came into contact with Augustine's anti-Pelagian writings. In particular, one writing entitled On the Spirit and the Letter was very influential for Luther. Now, you may be aware that Augustine is, is one of those characters from church history whom both uh, Catholics and Protestants claim as their own. And that is strange, isn't it? Um, especially when Augustine is regarded as so influential in helping the reformers recover the doctrine of salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. So how can he be a friend of both sides? Well, I think one factor is that Augustine was, was a bit like Martin Luther. His doctrine developed with time, so much so that uh, later in life, Augustine uh, published a significant volume which was simply entitled Retractions, where he reviewed all of his written works and he admitted where there were errors, where he had changed his mind, things he wished he had never written. And so a general pattern is, and I should say I'm not, I'm not an Augustine expert, but a general pattern is that um, Catholics tend to like early Augustine, Protestants tend to like late Augustine. And so when Augustine was fighting against Pelagius, that's late Augustine. And uh, well, in my view, if he, if he retracted a lot of the early stuff, you can't go far wrong with the later stuff. So what was it that changed in Luther's view of sin? The traditional view of original sin had defined it as the lack of original righteousness. So they entirely defined this original sin as the absence of something. Something's missing, which in itself isn't a problem. But for Luther, that only told part of the story. It, it simply did not go far enough. Listen to how Luther expands that definition. Over and beyond this, over and beyond this lack of righteousness, it is the proneness towards evil, the loathing of the good, the disdain for light and wisdom, but fondness for error and darkness, the avoidance and contempt of good works, but an eagerness for doing evil. Due to original sin, our nature is so curved in upon itself at its deepest levels that it bends the best gifts of God towards itself in order to enjoy them. This curvature of human nature was one of Luther's preferred images to describe the fallen condition of humanity. And it appealed to him because it really did emphasize that everything, everything that came from our fallen human nature was necessarily warped. We are bent out of shape. Our nature is carved in on itself. Just think about that. It's an effective, it's an accurate image. Uh, it's actually a helpful pastoral tool uh, for your own heart or for, for walking with someone who's wrestling with sin. Because we can ask of any sin, how does this sin show that I have turned in on myself and made myself the center of the universe? We were made to be turned out towards God, to glorify him. Instead, we are carved in on ourselves. Everything is about me. Everything comes back to me and is for my good and for my glory. 
And even in considering what a right response to sin might be, what would it look like for me to turn myself outwards, away from myself, towards God, towards others? Because we were made to glorify God, but instead we face inwards, self-focused, self-obsessed, self-glorifying, taking the things that God has given us, things that were designed to glorify him, and instead we serve our own needs and wants. Now let me push this a little further, uh, particularly this notion of original sin. There's, there's more for us to get at here, because Luther not only felt that the the medieval view of original sin was weak in terms of seeing it as the absence of righteousness. It also made for a passive view, a passive understanding, let's say, of how God views the indwelling sinful nature. And the term that was used to describe this original sin was tinder. And tinder in the, in the sense of uh, like firewood something that could be kindled easily into fire. The prevailing view of Luther's day was, was that this tinder that exists in all of us was in effect a neutral thing, which did not confer any guilt on the individual at all. It was only if you ignited the tinder, only if it was allowed to produce sinful actions that guilt was then incurred. So original sin was thought of as the tinder of sin. And sinful behavior was thought as actual sin. But Luther thinks this is an untenable position. And most importantly, he thinks it doesn't square with scripture. And at its core, it is nothing more than a resurrection of Pelagius's old ideas from a millennium before. And so this is why um, Neo-Pelagian or Semi-Pelagian are the sort of labels that often appear when you read the reformers in these debates. Because to their mind, people are presenting an overly optimistic view of humanity and hiding the truth of the severity of the human condition. By contrast, Luther sees that actual sin is not the sinful deeds that we do externally. Actual sin resides deeper. Actual sin is in the tinder, in the original sin that is in all of us. That original sin is not a neutral thing, but something that infects the entire person. So that what we see in sinful behavior is actually the fruit of sin that already exists within. John Calvin defined it like this. You'll find this on page five of your handout. Original sin is a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath, then also brings forth in us those works which scripture calls works of the flesh. And a passage of scripture uh, that really helps us here, and I'm going to turn there, is Ephesians chapter 2. And this is, this is really such an important passage of Scripture. I think most weeks of this module we're going to read from Ephesians 2. Um, let me just read the first four verses here in this description of, uh, of uh, the Ephesians before they had come to Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, then goes on to speak about God intervening. But look how deeply simple those, uh, the human condition is in those first, first three verses. He tells them, by nature, we are children of wrath. We have an inherited condition that does not cause us to stand neutrally before God in any sense, but condemns us. Now, I would say, uh, now more than at any time, evangelicals in particular are struggling to find their way in this area. Uh, we have often rightly heard that to be tempted is no sin, but to give in to temptation is to sin. But we need to be very careful about how we think about that, because uh, let me read to you from James. I've got this on the, on the handout here. James chapter one. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth. So, for example, when we read of the temptations of Jesus Christ, we must acknowledge that there is a difference between what temptation meant for him and what it means for us. And the difference is precisely because of this tinder that we've been speaking about. Jesus did not have this original sin within him. He did not have a, a sinful nature. And so there was, there was nothing inside of Jesus that ever desired sin. In contrast to us, well, our temptation to sin is something that comes from our hearts. We are lured and enticed by what? By our own desire. James does not allow us to say, he made me do it. The devil made me do it. He says, the reason for your sin is in here. And this has become a really hot topic, especially when discussing issues around sexuality, in particular, same-sex attractiveness. And the way that this is handled in some quarters, there is a very real danger that we forget that tendencies to be drawn towards sinful behavior are not in themselves neutral desires. They are not the expression of some uh, unbiased, uh, non-moral part of us. They come from the heart. They are a reflection of the tinder of sin that lies within us. And so we need to make sure that we continue to battle sin as believers, but we make sure that we battle sin in the heart. We're not just looking to put up external barriers to stop us from sinning, although anything that stops us from sinning is surely positive, but we fight sin in the heart in the thought life, in the core of our being, because actually we come to, we've come to understand that this is where sin really resides. So Tinder, our sinful nature, is sin. It, we, are, uh, we are culpable for that sin in our nature. 
And sinful actions are merely the fruit of the sin that already exists within us. Which leads us into the very important spiritual principle of the tree and its fruit. And uh, this takes us to page six of our handout. And uh, we start into the subject of the tree and its fruit. Uh, I think if you were to guess who the most influential figure on the worldview in the medieval church was, you probably wouldn't come up with the answer, Aristotle. But that is the case. Aristotle lived and wrote in the third century BC, third or fourth century BC. His, his works uh, appeared really as they were um, much later when they were translated into Latin in the 12th, 13th century. And one of the great theologians uh, if, um, who reconciled Aristotle's philosophy with Christian thought was Thomas Aquinas. I've got a quotation here from Aristotle's Ethics. Um, um, if I have them in the, in the handout, I beg your pardon, page six. The virtues then come neither by nature nor against nature, but nature gives the capacity for acquiring them. And this is developed by training. It is by our conduct in our interactions with other men that we become just or unjust. In other words, Aristotle's view of, of how we attain to the virtuous, he says, well, to be righteous, you must first do righteous. By doing righteous deeds, we then will become righteous. It's our actions that make us into the virtuous person. Luther, with a, a far more biblical appreciation of the condition, following Augustine's lead, he could not see how this could possibly be reconciled with scripture. And he, it certainly cannot, in his mind, be reconciled with what it means to have a sinful nature. He contends that a biblical understanding of this is the opposite of Aristotle, the exact opposite. He says, to do righteous, you must first be righteous. You see the distinction? Uh, Luther makes some comments on this in his lectures on Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10, verse 10, for with the heart man believes and is justified. And here... Uh, Luther would point us to, 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 to those verses to say something has to change in the heart first before someone can be justified. Paul is going out of his way uh, to say the opposite of Aristotle, not with the hands that one is justified, not with the externals and then change the internal, but something first takes place in the heart. But probably the most definitive refutation of Aristotle's view is uh, the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 7 from verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their 
fruits. Jesus's question is, how can a bad tree bring forth good fruit? Aristotle, how can a, a human being with a sinful nature do righteous things to make himself righteous? As Luther would point out, Aristotle and all who have followed his lead have got cause and effect mixed up. Because of sin, we are a bad tree. So we cannot produce anything other than bad fruit. And this is why um, moralism is such a killer in the church. And, and by moralism, I mean uh, preaching that doesn't preach the gospel, doesn't preach God's grace, but gives people little life lessons about uh, following the example of good conduct that you might see somewhere in the Bible, rather than saying you're a sinner who cannot do good before God. You need to trust in Jesus Christ, depend upon his grace. That's the gospel that people need to hear. But what often it is replaced with is moral teaching. And it's a killer. And in general, if you see a preacher's message advertised as something like 10 steps for a better marriage, a better home, or your best life now, run as far away as you can, because it is almost certainly not going to be gospel preaching. Because instead, it's the sort of, of preaching that calls people to be what they cannot be. Be a Daniel, be a David. Well, no. The human condition is such that telling us just to be this or that, to live an upright life, that's no good. We don't have it in us. It's this approach that means that we are perpetually treating symptoms and never treating the disease. If a bacterial infection is causing you to feel sick and the doctor says, well, we can give you something for the nausea, that is not good enough. You need something that's going to treat the infection. And so with the sinful nature, to go around saying, well, we can give you something for the nausea, that's no good. The heart is desperately wicked and needs the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to rescue us. It doesn't stop there. Because this sort of moralistic understanding, it, it affects the character of, of a whole church community. It leads to legalism. It results in a group of people who have a rigorous rule book, who have a sense of their duty to be right with God. And it results in this kind of transactional mindset where, well, I'll do my bit in the expectation that God will do something for me in return. And maybe that thing he'll do for me in return is give me eternal life. Maybe he'll give me an easy life now. Friends, this is not Christian thinking. This is not the gospel. It is the old problem of, of listening to Aristotle, who says, well, you know, to, to, to be righteous, you must first do righteous. It's confusing the fruit with the root. Preaching that never moves beyond moralism is preaching a message devoid of grace, at least lacking in grace. And that is Luther's beef with Aristotle. Now, the argument comes back. Uh, understandably, and says, well, come on now, come on now. The unregenerate, the person who's not a believer, they perform good works, don't they? And, and Luther doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that sinners do good works in the eyes of men. But he does deny that they do or even can do good before God. 
And to prove this, Luther draws from Augustine. Remember I said that uh, work of Augustine's, the spirit and the letter. Luther draws from Augustine where Augustine explains uh, a passage in Romans 2. So let me read the passage first, and then I'll read you what uh, Augustine had to say about it. Romans 2 from verse 17. The Apostle Paul, he says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now here's Augustine's comment on those verses. Uh, you'll find this in page seven of the handout. He writes, even those who did as the law commanded without the help of the spirit of grace, did it through fear of punishment and not from love of righteousness. Thus, in God's sight, there was not in their will that obedience which to the sight of men appeared in their work. They were the rather held guilty for that which God knew they would have chosen to commit if it could have been without penalty. And so for Luther, uh, such is the spiritual impotence of fallen man, that even though the outer man uh, applies himself diligently to good works, the inner man is filled to overflowing with opposite lusts and desires. Indeed, to strive to one's own justification is to reject the need of grace. It is to place confidence in one's own ability to obtain spiritual happiness, something Luther had discovered, discovered from bitter personal experience he really was not up to. Last week, we spent a bit of time considering Luther's 95 theses, which he posted on the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, but not so famous was a similar posting that he made um, uh, almost two months before that famous one back in September 1517. And these were the 97 theses labeled a disputation against scholastic theology. The scholastics were simply the scholars of the day. And it is, it is, it is an effort to tackle this Aristotle-influenced view of sin. Here are um, a few of those theses that he posted. Number 39, we are not masters of our actions from beginning to end, but servants. Verse, uh, number 40, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. 75, the grace of God, however, makes righteousness abound through Jesus Christ because it causes one to be pleased with the law. 76, every deed of the law without the grace of God appears good outwardly, but inwardly 
it is sin. So you see the, the fullness here of, 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 of Luther's picture, uh, taking his lead from Augustine as well, that the best we can ever do is to fight against our inward self, to have some sort of outward compliance. But actually, it's not our desire. It's not our deepest desire. We don't desire to do what is right and good in the sight of God. And in fact, if we could get off scot-free, we would, we, would, we would rush off and do whatever we could. We would launch ourselves into sin. Luther says that's the best you can get if you're working on yourself. If you're depending upon your own self to be right with God, you're saying, I can do this without God's grace. And actually, it is an offensive thing. It may look good before human beings. It may even be charitable and helpful to your fellow human beings. But in God's sight, it is done rejecting his grace. And so it's time to introduce you to another important figure uh, from the time of the Reformation, a man by the name of Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam. This man was an intellectual giant in his day. He um, published the, the Greek New Testament uh, multiple times in his lifetime. And it was the publishing of this Greek New Testament that the reformers made great use of. It's what led to Luther's conversion. Actually, he studied this published Greek New Testament that Erasmus had put together. And Erasmus was also a strong advocate of reform in the church. In his mind, he was very clear that corruption in the church needed to be dealt with. It was untenable. And there needed to be access to the scriptures for, um, for the common man and, 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 and you know, not just in Latin for, for those who were part of the of the clergy. And it seemed at first like he and Luther might be partners in this cause of reforming the church. But when it came to it, Erasmus distanced himself from Martin Luther. And he especially found Luther's understanding of the extent of the effects of sin in human beings to be offensive. Luther's claim that humanity cannot do that which pleases God. This was this was something Erasmus just could not live with. And in response to that, Erasmus wrote um, uh, a book the, on the freedom of the will, where he defines a free choice as a power of the human will by which a man can apply himself to the things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. So here there is something of a, of a more optimistic view than Luther would have, that there is this power in the human will that allows us to choose, on our own, to choose the right path. Well, the following year, Luther replied by writing, I suppose, slightly provocatively on the bondage of the will. You can see straight away that he's taking the opposite position. And his work is a dissection of Erasmus's work. And I want to say to you, Luther was never boring. And uh, I can remember uh, reading Luther's On the Bondage of the Will when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I probably regretted it. I, I wasn't uh, quite able to appreciate it uh, for what it is. Uh, coming back to it uh, in more recent times, um, you don't always agree with everything Luther writes, but he is never dull. And uh, just for some light relief, um, let me read something to you from the introduction, which he writes directly to Erasmus. I put this in your handout if you ever want to come back to it. Luther says, you not only by far surpass me in the powers of eloquence and ingenious 
but that you have damped my spirit and impetus and rendered me languid before the battle, because you conduct this discussion with a most specious and uniform modesty by which you have met and prevented me from being incensed against you. Your arguments have been indeed often refuted by me and by the incontrovertible book of Philip Melanchthon concerning theological questions, a book, in my judgment, worthy of being immortalized, in comparison of which your book is so mean and vile that I greatly feel for you having defiled your most beautiful and ingenious language with such vile trash, which is as if rubbish or dung should be carried in vessels of gold and silver. Like a Merlotham, he is never dull. Anyway, the substance of the book is that his, his main thesis is that the will of man without the grace of God is not free at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself to good. Now, people often get stuck here. So we take a little moment to, to go over what Luther is saying and what he's not saying. Uh, people get stuck with even the title of Luther's work. Because let's be honest, who would deny that we have free will? So let me be clear. Luther is not saying that we ever do anything against our will. In fact, he's saying we always do what we want to do. Always. And be sure, um, Luther is speaking, sp specifically talking about those who are unregenerate, those who are not believers, those who do not have the new birth, the new heart that comes by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. He says, this is what a human being is in sin. They have free will. They always do what they want to do. He's not saying that anyone is ever forced to sin. There is never any necessity put upon us. But what he's getting at is summed up in those verses that we read in Ephesians 2. You know, you were once dead in trespasses and sins. Um, what, what, and verse 3 of Ephesians 2, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Saying that we carry out the desires that we have. It's just that those desires are bound to be sinful desires. His debate with Erasmus about the depth, the depth of the effects of sin, Luther is making the case that it goes to the deepest part of who we are. It goes right into the human heart. And there it controls the human soul. It carves the soul in on itself. It molds the things that we love, that we long for. And it means that we do not long for God. And so there is not a decision that you ever made in your life that was against your will. But, be but believe me, unless God intervenes, we will never of our own selves desire God. Because this is the nature of sin. This is what it does to the once glorious image-bearing human condition. The differences in position between Erasmus and Luther are not small. Um, this is not a minute gap between these guys. This is not just a technical debate about the use of words. For Erasmus, he says the problem is we just need to be whipped into shape. And that's why the church is there 
to knock us into shape, to force us to sober up and to take our duties seriously. For Luther, you don't have the resources to shape up. Not all the whipping into shape in the world will make you shape up. The core of the Christian life is not about what we do. It is not about doing our duty. Those are the outworkings of having true spiritual life, which we need to receive from God as his gracious gift. As the Lord Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is in knowing Christ that we gain eternal life. We do not have it in us to do what God requires. So what do we make of this? Um, to spend a whole evening speaking about the, the lostness of humanity, uh, to spend a whole evening really burrowing in as far as we can see the full depths of how much sin has corrupted us deep in our hearts is a depressing thing, isn't it? And I think if we stopped there, uh, it would cause us to despair. Because overwhelmingly, it is true, the reformers had a very pessimistic view on human capabilities. But that's because they had a strong understanding a biblical understanding, I would contend, of the seriousness, the pervasiveness, the destructiveness of sin. We've considered the presence of sin as descended from Adam, how deeply that affects human beings. And it's a frightening, shocking subject. And we could have gone into a bit more about what that means in the sight of God. We could have done a study of, of the holiness of God just to magnify that sinfulness all the more. But let it suffice for us to see what it means to be a fallen human being, lost and enslaved in sin. The language of Ephesians 2 was that of death, wasn't it? dead in trespasses and sin. And this should not be controversial. But if the diagnosis is death, then holding out for the dead person to get himself up, to dust himself down, to whip himself into shape, to commend himself to God, is as preposterous as it gets. Dead people do not move even an inch towards God. If the dead are going to come to life, then they need to be brought to life by the life-giving breath of God. They do not have it in them. And this is precisely what God does for his people. And so here is the upside of what we've been doing tonight. You could say how thoroughly depressing, but there is an upside to this because actually the fuller your understanding of sin, the fuller the understanding of how lost you were outside of Christ, then the fuller and richer your understanding of grace becomes. That principle that we did read from Romans 5 surely applies. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's actually happening tonight. As we appreciate just actually how great sin was, in a sense, 
we, we, we never appreciated just how simple we were. How much more is the joy of seeing grace that abounded to a sinner like you and me? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You lose, if you lose the biblical message about sin, then you lose the biblical message about the amazingness of grace. It's when you grasp the severity of sin that suddenly you grasp the severity of the cross. Then you grasp the depths of the love of Jesus Christ. Yes, when you recognize yourself in that description of human sinfulness and lostness, then how can you ever look at the cross of Jesus in the same way again? We see, Tim Keller puts it something like this. When you look at the cross, you see that you are more lost than you ever realized, but that you are more loved than you could ever have dreamed. And as we look to the Savior through these lenses, love rises in us to Christ when we see the scale of the debt we've been forgiven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And the reformers, as they studied scripture, they understood the severity of sin, the fallenness of humanity. And as a result, they saw a depth to the grace of God that prior to that had been hidden from them. And I pray that this meditation on the human condition provokes not depression, but love and worship and rejoicing in the love of God which is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Well, I want to close tonight by reading some verses from some hymns. I have put these in the handout if you ever want to go back to them. Um, but it's to think about hymns that um, have been inspired by this understanding of the scale of sin. And I think the tragedy is that there are far too few hymns that... Uh, are brave enough to go to that uh, to that doctrine. Let me let me start with this first one, and, and there's something interesting about it. Um, by Isaac Watts, it opens like this: "Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I?" I say this is an interesting one, actually, because in um, a number of hymn books where this has been republished over the years, that last line of the first stanza has been changed. Listen to some of these changes. It starts off for such a worm as I. And then in another edition, it becomes the editor changes it to for sinners such as I. For such a one as I. For someone such as I. And that probably is reflective of how over the 20th century, anyway, when those, those hymn books were published, there's been a watering down of this sense of lostness. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, we can't come to the end of tonight and not own that, can we? Another Isaac Watts hymn, not the malicious or profane, the wanton or the proud, nor thieves nor slanderers shall obtain the kingdom of our God. 
surprising grace. And such were we by nature and by sin, heirs of immortal misery, unholy and unclean, but we are washed in Jesus' blood. We're pardoned through his name. And the good spirit of our God has sanctified our frame. Oh, for a persevering power to keep thy just commands. We would defile our hearts no more. No more pollute our hands. Augustus Top Lady, Rock of Ages, the third verse. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. There are some modern hymns that uh, touch on this. Uh, this is by Bob Coughlin. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. And last of all, this is by Jordan Coughlin. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Well, let me pray for us. And uh, let's thank God for his amazing grace to sinners such as us. Let's pray. Yes, Father, we dare not consider this as a mere intellectual exercise tonight. How dangerous a thing that would be for us. Father, we thank you that what we're talking about tonight is far, far more than some theories that some guys in the 16th century had about sin. But Father, this is your testimony from Scripture. We thank you for those who have, who have gone before, who have, who have opened up the Scriptures to us and who have stood firm on this understanding. And Lord, we, we stand before you humbled. Because as we've reflected on what your word says about the sinfulness of the human heart, Lord, we simply have to bow our head and say, that is, that is my heart. That is my heart. And Lord, there is not one of us who are part of this, this meeting tonight who this doesn't apply. If you hadn't loved us first, we would resist you, refuse you still. And yet, Father, we look to your, to your lovely son. And as we see just how sinful we are, or we see the depth, of, the depth of shame that he took upon his own shoulders as he bore away our sin on the cross. Oh, Father, may we love Jesus more deeply as we've reflected on all that he saved us from. And we pray that more and more you would be shaping our hearts to be like his heart. Lord, that you'd be fashioning our desires to, to long to pursue righteousness, to love your holiness. And Lord, we thank you for the amazing grace that saved us, cleansed us, and is changing us into the likeness of Christ. Thank you for everyone who's been part of, of tonight's 
and we pray, Lord, that Lord, that these would think these things would not depress us, but Lord, they would fill us with awe. That the Saviour would devote that sacred head for such a worm as I, accept of our praise, our worship, and our adoration tonight. O oh, Saviour of sinners, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.